The sermon text this morning is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. I'm not sure how old I was when I I learned that lesson that um, more is revealed about me uh, in terms of the trials I face or the hardships. I don't know if it was on an athletic event, if it came from a coach or my father, but I just remember the point being that, you know what, you're going to learn more about yourself when you fall or fail or when you lose rather than just when you win and find success coming to you easy. That it's in the difficulties and the hardships and the challenges that we begin to really find out who we are, what we believe, what we're made of, the character that we have, and, and not just individuals, but, but churches as well. Uh, it's, it's when we enter the difficult stuff that we begin to find out, okay, this is who we really are, N- not the facades and not the, not the props that we hold up trying to represent who we are. It, it's who we actually are. Now, you know, as Ray prayed and as uh, agreed with them, you know, we're in some difficult sledding now. Uh, you, you think about the, the political chaos we have. You, you look at the cultural chaos we have. You look at the, uh, the pandemic continuing on and, and all the narratives going along with it and everything, and, and the fear along with it, and, and you begin to wonder, these are some unique times, and, uh, and it's going to reveal who we are. You know, these difficult challenges are, are good in the sense that they, they can be re- revealing about us and, and to us. Uh, what's it going to reveal? You know, I'm thankful for this letter. We're starting this letter in Second Thessalonians. Uh, it's, it's really a, a church that Paul's very excited about. He's commending this church. He's, he's commending this church to other churches. He's really reveling over the nature of this church. But it's their afflictions that they were walking through which revealed really what they were made of. You know, if you remember the, the story in Acts 17, it's recorded where Paul planted the church in in uh, Thessalonica, and it was a very fast-growing church, unique among the other churches planted in the New Testament. They were only there for a couple months, maybe max a year, and this church grew very fast, and it grew in a sea of affliction and trials and difficulties. And, uh, and Paul got driven out with his friends, Timothy and, and Silas, and they got driven out. They're down in Corinth, and Paul begins to think, you know, uh, how are they doing? How are they progressing in the faith? So he sent Timothy up there. That's hundreds of miles, right? Northern Greece to southern Greece. Hundreds of miles Timothy walked, checked on the church, saw that they were growing, and, and returned to give Paul this great report. They're suffering, but they're hanging on, and they're doing well. And so he wrote the first letter to the Thessalonians. And, and, then, and then quickly on the heels, still from Corinth, Paul writes another letter. Because he heard they still were struggling. He wanted to encourage them. And he found that they were struggling with false teaching, that this idea that Jesus had already returned, 
uh, was beginning to be spoken about, causing confusion, and so he felt a need to write again, which he did do, and that's our letter that we'll be looking at. But, but I want you to notice in these first few verses, before he gets into the details of how he's going to encourage them, he just talks to them about them. That the afflictions and the struggles they're having, they're revealing a character of a church that's commendable, that's noble. And what I want to do as we're a church and we're going through these afflictions, I, I want to see how do we line up with this church? Where can we grow? You can't change it. The afflictions will have a winnowing effect on us. Uh, my prayer is that, as we said last week, that we're going to come out stronger. We're going to find out who we are, where we need to shore up some things, and, and this kind of picture of, the, of this church will give us a window as to how to kind of grade ourselves. Uh, so look with me at the text. The, the four things, I think, are revealed in this church. At first, the church had a clear sense of their identity in God. They had an identity in God as a father. Look with me at one and two. Normally, people fly right over the salutation, you know, but, but look at what Paul says. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we cruise right over that. But, but notice what he's saying here. Paul is writing to this church. Now, the word for church just means assembly. It's an assembly of people. It can be political, it can be social, it can be religious. Clearly, it's religious here. Now, he's writing to this church of the Thessalonians. Now, he's not writing to a universal church. We in this world love to talk about the universal church, the saints across time and across the ages. Uh, maybe mentioned twice in Scripture, but Paul rarely references that. This is the church of the Thessalonians. It's a town with a local assembly. It's not a multi-site church. It's one church gathered together in one town. A church is gathered together to worship God and to minister the gospel of God to the people around it. So he's writing to this church. And this church of the Thessalonians is in God. I want you to notice that little word in. It's very instructive. It, it really reveals to us this dynamic life-giving relationship. Our relationship to God is not clinical, it's not theoretical, it's very personal, it's very dynamic, it's very organic. Like a branch to a tree, we are in God. But we're not just in God, we're not just, you know, sharing our lives from, he's the source, he's the, he's the origin of of who we are as the church. But notice, we're in God as our Father. So he's a Father to us. So you think about the provision, the care, the protection, the knowledge that God has of you. God knows you. So, so you think about this aspect of God as a Father. Now, folks, this is not everybody's identity. Just because you're walking in flesh on this planet doesn't mean that you can call God as Father. Notice what he says. It's grace to you and peace from God, our Father. And this idea of grace is God's favor. It's God has unilaterally given to us a Messiah who has been sent to save. This is grace, it's favor, it's mercy. He has sent Christ uh, to dwell among us, to live in a way that was not broken, but please the Father in every way. And, 
and in our place took our sins and suffered the wrath of God so that now we can have peace with God. So the grace of God brings forgiveness and reconciliation to us, and that brings about a peace. Now we have peace with God. We can be adopted as his children. And again, this isn't yours by right. It's not yours because of potential. It's not yours because of some performance. It's the grace of God. You know, in John 1, 12 and 13, John, the gospel writer, says that um, to all who have received him, you know, received Christ, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, it wasn't some lineage, nor of human decision, it wasn't you woke up one day and you thought you needed it, but born of God. God has to give this life. Jesus said the same thing to Nicodemus when he says nobody can enter the kingdom of God unless he be born of water and the Spirit. And we saw last week, remember in 1 Peter, it's God who caused us to be born again to a living hope. God caused us to be born again. To what degree do you see God as your father? Now, I recognize some of you have had distant fathers, perhaps unengaged, perhaps absent, or even maybe they were cruel. This is a harder thing to understand when you've had that, that background. But the scriptures show us that God is a, a good, a perfect father, one who does care, one who does love. He actually cherishes his children. If you are a parent, you know the love that you have for your children. Even if you can't express it well, you know it's there. He cherishes us. He's adopted us. This is our identity. Now, I know that most of us, for most of our lives, we tend to identify ourselves by other markers, by age or by, by interest or by background or by lineage, or we identify ourselves as single or married or widowed or divorced. I'm not saying that those are not significant. I just say they're not primary. Uh, we are identified as children of God. Our identity now is different. We are God's, and he is ours. You know, Larry Hurtado is a New Testament scholar, and he wrote a book called um, The Destroyer of the Gods, The Distinctiveness of Christianity in the First Century. He also wrote a book about why did anybody become a Christian in the first century? He's trying to understand what was the drawing power of this new faith on the block, these followers of Jesus. And in this book, he writes about that never before in the Roman Empire or times before had people forsaken their race and gender and class and moved to believe we're all children of God. All the other religions still had their pecking orders. They still had their ladder of importance of class and race and gender, education. But now these early Christians, they didn't, they didn't disregard it as if it wasn't reality. It just didn't bear on how they identified themselves. We're children of God. The creator of the universe has come and delivered us in his son. And now we've been adopted and we have peace. To what degree do you identify as the children of God? As a child of God. Yeah, I want to remind you, you know, we have this identity theft problem now, of course, with the Internet. And billions of dollars is lost over losing your identity, maybe a Social Security number taken. Or, but what's lost when we forget that he's our father? I mean, joy, satisfaction, comfort, forgiveness. To be cherished by God, to not always be striving for God to like me. 
You know, it, it, it's, if you were a, a, a father, just say, and if your child's always asking, do you love me, do you love me? You sure I'll do this if you love me? You, you would be discouraged. You would want to keep comforting. So we can lose much. Now, I quoted this a couple of years ago, but it bears repeating. G.I. Packer writes, you can sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as a knowledge of God, as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. To what degree do you understand God as a father? And, and the reason I ask that, because it bears on the next question, to what degree do you understand the value of the church? Because if God is our father, then we covenant members of Christ's covenant church, we're brothers and sisters. Uh, we are absolutely connected at, with, a more, with, a, with a bond that is eternal and not temporal. You know, one of the greatest threats, I think, to the church, particularly revealed in this COVID, is um, it's not atheism, it's not socialism, it's not the internet. The greatest problem that I think we face is individualism, that we're going to do Christianity kind of solo, that we're going to try to develop a spirituality without developing active engagement of one another in their life. I think this is going to be deadly to us. I'm thankful for technology. We have the internet and we have live streaming now for those who are unable to come right now, and that's wonderful. I don't think it's a fix. I don't think it's to be permanent. You can't, you can't sit on the couch and grow in spiritual well-being apart from engagement with the brothers and sisters all worshiping God together. Again, for those folks that are in unique situations, we're thankful for the technology, but ultimately we, gotta get, we have to get gathering together again because we have to be intersecting each other's lives. So to what degree do you see your identity as a child of God related to your brothers and sisters? John Stock kind of adds this connection. He says, Christian life is not just our own private affair. If we have been born again into God's family, not only has he become our father, but every other Christian believer in this world, whatever his nation or denomination, has become our brother and sister in Christ. So this church in Thessalonica, they understood this. They didn't dispense with gender and race and class. They just understood primarily first we're children of God and we're related to one another in this journey, in this progress towards seeing God. That's why Paul commends them. They got that. But secondly, they were growing in faith. Look with me in verse 3. In verse 3 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And it's interesting, we, we read that, we ought always to give thanks. Some people read that, and I love when scholars want to introduce something new to a commentary. A lot of times they almost want to go off on a whole different rail just to be unique in what they're saying. And they say, yeah, this shows you that Paul is kind of cold and inconsistent. And Look, he, he doesn't really love him, he has to give thanks. It's an obligation to him. Let me remind you, I don't buy that at all. Just because something is an obligation doesn't mean we don't do it with freedom or with joy or with love. Paul's simply saying we ought always to give thanks to God because he knows that God is the one who is giving the grace for their faith to grow. It's God who is propelling them forward in faith. Paul wants them to know that he's giving thanks to God because God's the author of it. You may not remember this, 
But in the first letter, in chapter 3, Paul prayed for this very thing, that their faith would grow. In chapter 3, 10, he says, We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what's lacking your faith. So here Paul is praying for it, and now he sees it growing, and of course he ought to thank God. It's the right thing to do. He prayed to God, God, would you supply what's lacking? And then, boom, God does it, so we thank him for it. But when he thanks them for their faith, I want you to understand this. It's a growing faith. Uh, by faith, I don't simply mean that it was that initial time where they put their trust in God. You know, Paul came and preached the gospel, and, and they saw themselves as sinners and needed to be reconciled to the creator of the universe, and so they repented of their sins. They put their faith in Christ, who's the Messiah, who died for their sins, and they were saved. It's more than that. You see Paul saying their faith was growing abundantly. See, what I want you to know is that true faith, genuine faith, is a growing faith. It's a growing faith. How does it grow? Well, it's growing in terms of your own confidence in God's goodness in the midst of affliction. Uh, uh, growing faith is a growing confidence in God's promise to forgive and accept you, even though you are a sinner. A growing faith is a confidence increasing that God is sovereignly designing all things to work together for your good and his glory. You see a picture of growing faith, I think, in the parable of the sower. And you also see a picture of faith that's not growing. So in the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about the farmer who throws the seed. Some seed falls on the trodden path and just hard. The birds come and take it. And then other seed falls among the rocky soil and among the thorns and among the fertile soil. Now they all experience this initial growth. They all respond. The seed germinates and begins to grow. But the seed in the rocky soil and the seed among the thorns, they don't make it. They don't finish. Why? Well, the cares and the worries of the day, the temptations and the distractions of life. And you see what started out as life ends up not as life. And Paul's saying, you have a growing faith. Your faith is growing. To what degree? This is another diagnostic. If we're, we're going to look at, are we a commendable church? Are we a noble church? Do we root our identity in God as our Father and we as his children? That's, that's important. And a second diagnostic is, do you see your faith growing? I mean, do you see? Many of us, I think we look at faith as like a commodity or, or like an object or like something static where you can, you have it, you see it, you put it in a vault, and you store it away, and I'll pull it out if I need it again. That's not the way the Bible teaches about it. I mean, the Bible teaches about faith as it's ever growing. You ought to be growing in your confidence that God is good. And even in the midst of COVID, God will do his work. Uh, faith growing would be an increase in confidence uh, that you will finish strong, that by God's grace, he will hold you fast. We just sang it. Our hope is in him. Uh, a, a growing faith is you have an increased longing to see him. Death becomes less of a threat to you because it becomes the step to see him. These things begin to increase with growing faith. I want you to see it this way. It's like a, it's like a wedding and a marriage. You know, a wedding, we just had one a couple weeks ago, it was a sweet time. Uh, a wedding is a one-day event where vows are made between a couple and God. But the wedding is not the marriage. The wedding leads to the marriage. Uh, the marriage is where uh, the husband and the wife grow 
in oneness, in unity, in intimacy. It's maybe in fits and starts, two steps forward, you know, it, it may be inconsistent, but there's this incremental growth over time to this oneness before God. The, the wedding doesn't do that. It, it's the marriage, but the, they're together. It's like justification, justification, sanctification. Justification, we're saved, but sanctification, we're growing in the faith. Now, I, I want to say this, particularly to some of us who have been in the faith longer. Have you not seen growth in your life? I mean, have you just been kind of on this, you know, whenever you see a static line like that, particularly on a heart monitor, that's not a good sign. And, and do you see that in your faith? It, it, it should be increasing. You know, Paul actually warns us about this. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Now, he's talking to believers. He's talking to you, the church, and he's saying, examine yourselves. In other words, there is a place for you to scrutinize over your own soul and say, has my faith grown, and in what way? Now, this is the beauty of the church. I do think there's a place where you ask your spouse, you ask a friend, where do you see me growing in the faith? Uh, do you see me growing? Uh, if, if you're a man and you're married, ask your wife, do you see me growing or do you see me stagnant? And wives, ask her husband, uh, those who are not married, ask a good friend. If you have kids that are old enough, ask them. If you have parents, ask them. Brace yourself for what they may say, but... but but involve. It, we're so quickly ready to assign ourselves a place of good. This isn't meant to bring hardship on you. It's meant to calibrate. This is where we are. And by God's grace, let's move forward. Uh, so, so a second diagnostic of a healthy church or a healthy Christian is there's abundant growth. Paul used this agricultural term of vigorous growth to show this is what we ought to be like. Are you growing in faith? If you're not, then cry out to God and ask him for grace that he would, he would grow large in your eyes. You know, it, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. If you're burdened by this, run to Christ and ask him for help. Just say, help me. Help my faith grow. Confess, perhaps, distractions and things that you've allowed to enter your life that are taking the life from your faith growing. It can be all kinds of things. Okay, the third quality of this noble church or commendable church is an increasing love. In fact, if you were to ask me, how do I really know that my faith is increasing? I could just say, well, your love should be increasing. They go together. Look with me back at three because he gives thanks to God he says in 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Of course, for your faith abundantly growing, but also because the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So here he's talking about this love increasing. So think of a, think of a river after many days of rain. The river fills up and kind of overflows the, you know, the, the, the bounds of the river and just goes into the fields. This Paul's saying that even in the midst of persecution, this church was increasing in faith and increasing in love. And notice, he says, every one of you. This isn't for the 20% of the church. This isn't for the super spiritual or super gifted. He says, every one of you, your love is increasing. Every one of you. Nobody 
is missing this train. That's the Spirit of God moving in this church. Everyone, their love was increasing. Now, when we think about the love that's increasing, I don't want you to think some personal experience with God in a prayer closet where you feel close and your hair kind of stands up. That's not. He says, the love every one of you has for one another. There's a very practical, a very horizontal nature of this love that he's talking about. Now, we, we're not told exactly what it manifested itself as, but I can imagine that in a church that is suffering greatly, what would love, lo what would love look like for you? Well, for me, it would look like people sharing their goods with me or praying with me or encouraging me or strengthening me or coming alongside when I'm beginning to waver and weaken. You know, th this is the love that's increasing. And not surprisingly, Paul prayed for this. Let me remind you of the first book of Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 12. He says, Now may God our Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. I mean, if you just read First and Second Thessalonians, you ought to be encouraged about prayer. I mean, he prays for faith, they grow in faith. He prays for love, they grow in love. I mean, God really does hear us, and he really does answer our prayers. Appeal to him. I'm encouraging you to do it. Their love was increasing. To what degree do you feel like your love has increased for one another? And in what ways would it be manifest? Now, I don't mean your friend group. Everybody has a, a friend group where they have people with them and they've known them a long time, they, they act like them, they have similar experiences and their lives have kind of merged together. That's a wonderful thing. But I think what he's talking about here is every one of you for one another. In what ways is your love increasing towards those, let's say, outside your friend group? And by that I mean, how are you engaging others in conversation? How are you seeking maybe to draw one new person into your world every year? To what degree are you moving with practical aid? Maybe saying, you know, this year I'm going to grab one other person and I'm going to read the Bible with them. I'm going to read a book with them. I'm going to engage, you know, the discipleship. A very simple definition of discipleship is just seeking the spiritual good of another person. It could just be in a conversation. I'm going to have coffee with them. I'm going to draw somebody. So when Paul's saying a mark of a commendable church is their love is increasing, and their love increasing is a practical way of we are entering in each other's lives. Now, I have been a pastor long enough to know the oddities that the church can draw, that we're all different from one another. And some of us are very off-putting to others. I, I totally get it. I see it. I mean, I don't have this kind of hazy, rosy view of how beautiful the church is. We are as rape, we are broken people, and broken people sometimes are difficult to be with. I, I totally, I see that. But that's what makes the church so commendable, is everybody else has their friend groups and they stay together. We're different in the sense that our love for one another that increases is towards those people that are often not like us. We're bearing with one another in love. Why would Paul command us to bear with one another in love if sometimes we're unbearable? You know, but we're called to do this. And the love I'm speaking about isn't some Hollywood love. You know, love means never having to say you're sorry. Now, um, now if a TV guru, counseling guru says that, you got oohs and ahs coming out of the audience. We, th that stuff is gobbled up. I mean, like Christmas candy. People love that. A biblical love is not conditional. It's not conditioned upon behavior or the emotions you may be feeling. A biblical love is volitional. We are choosing 
to exercise love, care, conversation, effort towards people who may be maybe kind of unlovable. That's what a biblical love is. It, it, it's a love that's fueled by faith. If we really believe in God, that he has delivered us by grace and peace, then we exercise that. So our love towards others has the same texture and tone that gospel love has, which is by nature sacrificial. So to what degree are you loving one another? Are you praying to love one another? I was praying in today, God, help me to love people. Just help me to love people and not avoid people. I mean, if I'm praying that prayer, I mean, we can all pray that prayer. Uh, so this is the third characteristic of a, of a commendable church, uh, that, that they are not just see their identity as children of God, growing faith in the midst of affliction, and increasing love. Folks, if it gets darker, let me tell you, virtual friendships aren't going to serve you. It, it's going to be the life on life that you get from the church you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer warned about that. You know, those who lost the fellowship of the saints, he warned. He was one who did. I mean, the underground church, they, they lost what was common to them, and they suffered for it. Don't miss what's good right now. Okay, and then the fourth characteristic is simply this, that they were steadfast in enduring suffering and persecution. We don't know suffering and persecution. He says persecution is more of a specific probably form of harm that maybe they were facing from those who opposed the gospel. Afflictions that he speaks about, more of a general term of, of maybe suffering, marginalizing from society or ridicule or mocking or whatever. But notice what he says. Look with me in verse 4. He says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you're enduring. Now it is interesting, you might think, this seems a little odd. He shifts from thanking God to boasting in the church. And, uh, and you're like, well, wh what's the shift? You know? And it does seem a little odd. Paul is the church planter, and he's boasting about the church that he planted. So initially, it may seem self-serving to you. But, but let, me, let me try to point out something different. I think what Paul's doing is, Paul is trying to encourage this beleaguered church. And he's saying, let me tell you, I see God at work in you. You guys are hanging on. You're holding fast, you're, you're enduring in faith, in suffering. And it's so commendable that I'm telling other churches about it. Now you might think, well, why didn't he encourage them with hope? You know, because we've talked about faith, we've talked about love. Hope is the finishing of the triad of Christian virtues. Why didn't he talk about hope? Well, I think he is. When he's saying that they're enduring and they're steadfast, that's the fruit of hope. In other words, it's their hope in Christ alone who has come to die for their sins and to reconcile them to God. It's their hope in Christ that he is now at the right hand of God, interceding for them, causing all things to work together for good. It's their hope in Christ that he's going to come back and he's going to make all things right, which we're going to talk about next week, because he moves right from their afflictions till the Son of Man will come and bring relief to those who are suffering, and he will bring wrath to those who are wicked. And I think he's saying, they have this faith in Christ. They have this hope in Christ, which fuels it. You will not endure without a solid hope. You can't endure. If you don't have a solid hope that transcends time and trials and circumstances, we are very vulnerable. 
to all kinds of affliction and suffering. But we endure to the degree that our hope is secure. So to, to what degree has COVID revealed about your faith? So we're under some trials and some annoyances and some governmental restrictions, and, and some of us are feeling more threat in terms of our physical well-being. So what has been revealed in you? Has, has gripping fear over the possibility of an early death due to COVID, has that been gripping you? And, and where are the promises of God that every day appointed to you was known to him before one came to be? How is that helping you? Or, or has your response been more anger and bitterness or annoyance at the government because of what you perceive as overreach, although they're trying to, in their own perhaps goofy way, trying to serve society's good? Maybe there's 10,000 narratives running through it all, but at the end of the day, what is being revealed in you? And where do you find your hope going? You know, some of us are, we're reading the news, we're hearing podcasts, and and people are saying, well, this means this, and this means that. And all of a sudden now we're dealing with problems that are three years away that we don't even know if they're going to be ours, and fear begins to come. Where is your hope? Because if your hope is in some governmental action or some medical action and vaccine, if your hope is in just, I want everything to just go back to normal, if your hope is in those things, I, I fear you're going to be greatly disappointed. Your hope needs to be in something more solid. What their hope was was in Christ, who is going to come, and he's going to do two things. He's going to bring relief to his children, and he's going to bring wrath to those who are bringing harm to the children. If our hope isn't in Christ alone, then I would say that we are very vulnerable. So as I was thinking about this, where is our hope? I thought about the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is a, is a kind of a, a confessional statement on what we believe, like the Westminster Catechism. It was written in the mid-16th century out of Germany, out of a Reformed tradition. Here's the first question. He says, what is your only comfort in life and death? Or you could say, what is your only hope in life and death? Here's the answer. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him, Christ. By his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is a statement. That is something you can hope in. That you are not your own. You belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to Jesus Christ, your Savior. He has fully, for those with faith, he has fully paid for all of your sins. He watches over you that not a hair of your head will fall apart from the will of your Father in heaven who sits in the heavens and he does as he pleases. All things must work together for your salvation because you belong to him. So we can live wholeheartedly. We can charge forward. We don't need to be in fear. 
We don't need to be threatened about what is or what could be. There's a thousand scenarios you could wiggle in front of in nervousness. This is the reality that we put our hope in. I want it to be like an anchor for us, that our hearts are just gripped on we are not our own. We belong to him. Not a hair of your head. Not COVID, not government, not socialism, not any other ism can cause one hair to fall from your head apart from the perfect will. And you know that if a hair does fall from your head, it will work out for your salvation in a perfect way. So this is a commendable church. They're thriving. They're growing. They're loving. They're doing all the church stuff in the middle of great affliction of which we have not seen what they saw, and yet they stand before us as an example of what God can do through a church. We have a whole year ahead of us. God graciously has brought us to 2 Thessalonians to prepare us and to ready us. So folks, I am full of hope. And full, I want to be full of love and full of faith. And I want to be full of joy that we are children of God. We don't have to worry about what we eat, drink, or wear. For our Heavenly Father knows everything we need. So let's just take a moment now and just, and just consider God and his glorious son and all that he is to us. And then maybe just give thanks to him, worship him in these moments. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.